Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? What do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by Morgan Morales, returning guest, to talk today about the much-requested 1938 Adventures of Robin Hood. So welcome, Morgan. Hello. I'm glad to be back. Want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself for anybody who has not listened to your past appearances? Yeah, I am a PhD student in North Carolina. Medieval history is not my thing after undergrad. So I'm more of a modern historian and my work consists of Jewish women who underwent abortions during the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Important work. Thank you. Why did you want to talk about this particular film? I love this movie. It's, I have since childhood. So my mom and okay. I got started watching classic movies when I was about 11 years old. I had the flu one weekend and she went to rent movies. And I think, you know, I probably expected her to pick whatever was on the new release wall back when we went to video stores and they were actual videos to date myself a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) But instead she came home with like three classic movies, like the most recent movie that she picked was from 1957. So (laughs) like my childhood, my, my adolescence was spent watching all of these classic movies. Um, This was a big one. This along with the Disney one are the definitive Robin Hoods for me. Okay. I agree with you on the Disney one. This one, I I did enjoy it, but this one I had never seen before. Okay. I actually have a poster of this one in my old room at my dad's house. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. So yeah. You, have, you have a long history with this movie. Whereas, yeah, my history is very recent with this movie. Yeah. I think unless you're, you're someone who's going out of their way to, to watch classic movies and to find mm-hmm. classic movies, you know, if you're a regular Turner classic movie watcher, which, you know, yeah. I went to their film festival three years in a row, but unless <laughs> you're one of those, you know, it's an 83 year old movie. As a medievalist, I, as everyone knows, I've covered many, many Robin Hoods, most of them terrible. And I do often end up having a little bit of Robin Hood fatigue. I figured, yeah. (laughs) Well, because when you first asked for guest hosts, this was the movie I said. And that was over a year ago. (laughs) Right. And I think that is because I, there are Robin Hoods that I'd already seen. And then I was like, all right, I guess I should cover this at some point. But I have not always felt the greatest enthusiasm about watching new Robin Hood films with the exception of the actually the 2018 one that was just seemed so ridiculous that I knew I had to see it and cover it relatively soon. And it was. After its appearance. And it was exactly. Yeah. Met really all expectations. Yeah, I think you're only missing two now. Oh after God, this one. really? Yeah, so there's, <laughs> there's, there's the 1922 silent one with Douglas Fairbanks. Okay. And then there is one from the 70s where Robin and Marion are older and it's called Robin and Marion and it has Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn. Oh, that's right. Yes, I've heard. Yeah, uh, that's been mentioned to me recently. So yeah, I am on the verge of Robin Hood completism. I think there's also a TV mini series that somebody has recommended to me at some point, which I'll have to deal with. Hopefully this one wasn't a have to deal with situation. No, this I ended up, uh, in fact, ultimately really enjoying. Yeah, yeah. And actually, when we get to the rating system, I'll, I'll kind of talk about one of the reasons why this this is one of the top ones for me, one of the top okay. Robin Hood ad- adaptations. I look forward to talking about that, too, because I also would say that this is one of the ones, ultimately, that I think I might like more. So we'll discuss. Mm-hmm. So the Adventures of Robin Hood stars uh, Errol Flynn as Robin Hood. And Morgan, I know you have a lot of thoughts about the cast, and uh, you can go ahead and share those, as I mentioned, people, since not being a big Turner Classics movie watcher, I 
don't know a lot about most of these people. That's fine. Happy to do it. This is where where all of this, I don't want to say useless, but all of this, you know, <laughs> superfluous film trivia that lives in my head right. is going to come in handy. Yes. Okay. So Errol Flynn, Tasmanian devil, because from Tasmania and frankly, quite devilish, very, very charming, not really a natural actor. He, he really overacts, mm-hmm. but he's very genuine about it. Yeah. Which I think plays very well. And he got better at acting later in his career, but also a grade A creep who went on trial for statutory, ter- oh. statutory rape like twice, I think, in the Ooh. 40s. And also a voyeur who had a bunch of cameras and peepholes and mirrors in his house. That makes the scene of his like sneaking into Marianne's house a little less charming, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I didn't know this when I was watching the movie. I mean, I didn't know it when I was watching. I think the first time I saw this, I was 12, so. Yeah, Olivia mm-hmm. de Havilland as Maid Marianne. Dame Olivia de Havilland, who managed to live until the age of 104, died just last summer, last July, after her 104th birthday. So she was the last surviving cast member of this movie, probably best known for Gone with the Wind, Mm -hmm. but did eight movies with Errol Flynn. Oh, huh. And this is like the third or fourth, I think. They vary in quality. This is probably the best one. Their first movie together was a pirate movie called Captain Blood. Mm -hmm. That sounds fun. He's the dashing pirate. His name is Blood. As, as dash- you do. Yes. He is a doctor before he's a pirate. Of course he is. <laughs> <laughs> She's the governor's daughter and, you know, adventure. High Same director as this. It's very much indicative of what the studio system in the early days of film was. And uh-huh. it's a stock company, essentially, where right. the studio would decide, you're going to do this movie, you're going to do this movie. And if a pairing worked... They would just keep doing it, uh, yeah. which is how these two ended up in eight movies together. Not always as love interests. There's one where mm-hmm. um, he plays the Earl of Essex and Betty Davis is Queen Elizabeth I and Olivia de Havilland is a lady in waiting. So they don't really have a whole lot to do uh, together mm-hmm. there. But still, they work together pretty much constantly. There were rumors that they were involved. She denied it, though she said that they loved each other. Nothing actually ever happened. Okay. Um, Interesting. She also recently sued Ryan Murphy before she died, producer of American Horror Story. Ooh. Um, he did a TV series called Feud, Betty and Joan, about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And Olivia mm-hmm. de Havilland is a supporting character in it because she was really good friends with Betty Davis. Catherine right. Zeta-Jones played her, which was bad casting. But Yeah, that's a weird choice. If you have one remaining person who is still alive, you might think maybe they should talk to that person so that they can be at least somewhat accurate about their story, but they didn't. So she took issue with how she was portrayed. Ryan Murphy's excuse was, well, she's old. We don't want to bother her. Catherine Zeta-Jones' excuse was, well, we were going to, but then the terrorist attack happened in Nice, France. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Olivia de Havilland had lived in Paris since like Mm -hmm. the 1950s. Nice and Paris are, they're pretty far apart. Right, right. Yeah, no, I love the idea of like, well, I mean, France is dealing with with a lot of terrorism right now. So clearly I can't bother this one person who happens to live in France. Yeah, it's essentially, so basically, I mean, my feeling on it is you just didn't want the little old lady telling you what was wrong about your story. Right. So you use terrorism as an excuse. Right. Yeah, which is not a great look. She lost her lawsuit, and I understand it, but also I kind of respect that she went after their arrogance. Yeah, yeah, because they're not really obligated to talk to her or for her to approve, to approve the portrayal. Right. But I'm kind of good for her for having some way of essentially publicly commenting on it, at least. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I will give one last note about Olivia de Havilland. Because of the way the studio system worked, if an actor refused a movie, then the studio could suspend their contract. But the mm-hmm. time of suspension, hi Carmen, this is time of suspension would be added on to the contract. Oh, huh. uh-huh. Other actors right. have complained about this, among them Betty Davis. Olivia de Havilland mm-hmm. took Warner Brothers to court over the fact and got this practice stopped. Which oh, wow. Is one That's of cool. The- yeah, it's one of the Good first win- it's one of the first and major wins for labor practices for actors in the studio system. Mm-hmm. Today it's called the de Havilland law. Hmm. And it's still go. in effect. So, yeah. Her. That's awesome. Good for her. Mm-hmm. She did not work for 3 years after that. Mm. She got sort of blacklisted, right? But then she won two Oscars. I'm not 100% sure I've seen her in anything cuz I kind of refuse to see Gone with the Wind. Racist. Yeah, it's I've never seen it and I feel like since I've never seen it and now I know that it's kind of racist. I feel like I feel weird making the choice to see it. Oh, not kind of. It's racist. Yeah. Okay. Having not seen it, you know, my, my sense was at the very least that it definitely heavily glorified the antebellum South, uh, which is something that you cannot do without being at least tacitly racist. So. Well, it- it also, I think more than that, does that with the postbellum period. Mm, it really okay. glorifies the, okay. post, the post-war period and how for, um, formerly enslaved people were treated. Like most of the formerly oh, enslaved that worked at the plantation terra choose to stay with the family as part oh, of the God. Family. Yeah. And that's why I'm not seeing God with the Wind. But I'm yes. sure Olivia de Havilland is very good. She did get her first Oscar nomination for it. As I said, I'm sure she's very, I'm sure she's a very good job playing a racist. We have Basil Rathbone as Guy of Gisborne. You know the image we have of Sherlock Holmes with the deerskin cap and the pipe? Yes, that is him. That is the one, that was the one casting thing I knew was that I've never actually seen that Sherlock Holmes, but that I knew that that was what he was famous for. He did it 14 times over seven years. Oh, wow. Also just really kind of a fantastic actor and really commanding presence. I like Basil Rathbone. Yeah. Yeah, I thought he did a great job and he plays this like very kind of villain role. And I mean, it's I mean, it's obviously he plays a villain, but it's also, you know, a very much like your kind of mustache twirling evil villain in a lot of ways. Yeah. And uh, he does a good job with it and makes it feel almost in some moments a little bit nuanced for a character that isn't actually that nuanced, I don't think. And also, I think it's clear from the other things that he's done that he really must have a decent amount of range. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of the British system of coming up. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to, you know, the US at that point, the studio system. Yeah. We also have Claude Rains as King John. Claude Rains is fantastic. He's actually one of the, yeah. probably one of the best character actors to have ever been on film. He starred in the very first adaptation of The Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. I mean, his filmography is incredibly impressive. Worked with pretty much every major director, a favorite co-star of a lot of different people. I mean, to mention Betty Davis again, she absolutely loved working mm-hmm. with him and she had quite the reputation with co-stars. So that says a lot. But yeah, just really, really, really fantastic actor and, and playing a wide, wide range of roles. Um, one of my favorite movies with him is the Alfred Hitchcock movie, Notorious, mm. um, where he plays a former German scientist in Argentina. Oh, interesting. In the period. So you can see where that's going. Yes. Yeah. I found interesting that in a 1943 Phantom of the Opera film, he does play the Phantom. 
Yeah, it's not the most well-known of the classic Phantom of the Opera adaptations. That's the Lon Chaney silent one. But it, mm-hmm. yeah, and he is, he's good in it too. He seems like an interesting choice for that. Yeah, you kind of know when you go into a movie and you see Claude Rains and it's usually like second or third billing. He's never the top billed guy. But you know, right. th- that you're going to actually have something good in there. Yeah, and finally somebody I've seen in something, he is also in Casablanca. He's the like police guy, right? Captain Renault Louis. Yeah. Yeah, he, and he was he was great. He is the subject of the line, Louis. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Yes, he yes. is also the one who says, "Round up the usual suspects." No, I mean it's a great role. Yeah, Casablanca is in my top five of all time. So obviously, an excellent movie. I mean, you know, real real hot take here that Casablanca is a great movie, but uh... no, I think. But I think because at this point, because it's it's almost a cliche to point out that it is a great right. movie to the point where people kind of think, is it? But no, it is. It's, it's, it's earned its reputation. And as somebody who I don't watch a lot of old movies, sometimes when I do, don't always necessarily feel deeply like they hold up or work for me. Casablanca, I think very much does. I think as I've gotten older, like I kind of appreciate her relationship with Victor Laszlo a little bit more than the relationship with mm-hmm. Humphrey Bogart's character, which is kind of patronizing in a lot of places yes. especially at the end yep um mm-hmm. every year w magazine does a great performances thing where they will talk to actors who are getting buzz for being nominated for oscars and they'll have them do really t- ridiculous things like please give a dramatic rendition of these pop lyrics um mm-hmm. and a few years ago when alicia vikander was nominated and won for the danish girl they had her do humphrey bogart's monologue from the end of casablanca the here's Ooh, looking fun. at you kid and it just it kind of blew me away at how much better her take was um, mm-hmm. because it wasn't as patronizing as his was. It was, it was more like, it, it felt like the relationship would have been more recipro- reciprocal, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. really fascinating to me. But I do think Casablanca has not only held up, but it's got some of the best dialogue in film. Oh yeah, absolutely. So those are the people that I particularly made a note of as the people who watching the film really stuck out to me. But are there any, is, is there anyone else from the cast that you would like to uh, make sure we talk about? I think we should probably mention that Alan Hale Jr., or Sr., rather, Alan Hale Sr. played Little John three different times over the span of 28 years. Really? Yes. And I am completely blanking. So he did it in the 22 silent film with Douglas Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. And then he did it here 16 years later. And then he did it again. And I'm I'm completely blanking on the name of the movie. It's not a direct Robin Hood. I think it's like a sequel, a Robin Hood type sequel. Um, but yeah, so he he made a career out of playing Little John. And his son was the skipper on Gilligan's Island. Huh. And I okay. think you can see the resemblance. Hmm. It didn't jump out to me, but I also, I don't think I've seen Gilligan's Island since I was a kid. Oh, I haven't either. But yeah, yeah. He, okay. so his, I'll look at his, pictures. It's Alan Hale Sr. and then Alan Hale Jr. was the skipper. Okay. Eugene Pallet plays Friar Tuck and he's a huge character actor. He did a lot of movies. Mostly mm-hmm. kind of the straight man in screwball comedies. Okay. Hmm. All right. That makes sense. I can see that. It absolutely does because that man does not have a voice for medieval England. <laughs> right. I've watched a number of things recently where I've had people who uh, aggressively don't seem to belong in the Middle Ages. Let's jump into the plot of the film for the enumeratio section. So I'll start with just a very brief orienting recap, and then we'll get into some details. In 1191, with Richard held captive on his way home from the Crusades, John plots to take the throne and continue oppressing the Saxon populace with heavy taxes and violent repression. Robin of Loxley seeks to protect the people and encourage them to revolt against John while also remaining loyal to King Richard. This, of course, earns him the enmity of John, as well as John's right-hand Guy of Gisborne, and eventually also the love of John, or sorry, the love of Marion. 
whoever, whoever the love interest is. I'm not cutting that out of Marion. The way Claude Rains played it. Right? He's yeah. like, I think he'd be interested. I think he'd be on board. Earning him the love of Marion, who is John slash Richard's ward. We start with a medievalized version of the WB logo. It's very cute. It is. Yeah, yeah. they used to do a lot more of that. It's it's nice. I like it. Mm-hmm. We get the inferences based on ancient Robin Hood legends, a terminological choice that I will talk about in the later section. Yeah. We get a title card informing us that in the year of our Lord, 1191, Richard went on crusade and named his friend Longchamps as regent, knowing as, sorry, as regent, I cannot talk today, knowing that his brother John was the worst. John has basically taken over at this point and is being terrible and plotting. As one does. As one does. And we get news, news from Austria that Leopold of Austria has seized Richard and is holding him prisoner. And you know, I am just going to say now, I gasp with delight when they said this, because it's one of my many, many pet peeves about the many, many Robin Hood movies I have seen is that none of them acknowledge the fact that the reason Richard took so long to get home from crusade It's not that he's actually on crusade for that whole time. It's that he gets captured and held prisoner for ransom for years. And it's just such an interesting part of the story that I think they should mention, but I guess they decide usually it's too complicated, so they just ignore it. So I really like that they mention that right off and that the ransom is actually part of the narrative. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't it be the Holy Roman Empire at that point? So the person who first captures him is like the Duke of Austria or something like that, which is a different thing. I think that's his title. And then he's also, then the, the Holy Roman Emperor is also involved. Uh, there, there's a whole group of Germanic people who are it's, holding well, okay. Richard captive. Okay, but because part of the issue with that is that you have to tell an audience where these places are. Right. And orient them in ways they'll understand. Even if these, Paul, these will say didn't exist as they were then. I mean, Austria was used as a name then, but if you say Leopold of Austria, that's going to make so much more sense than Leopold of the Holy Roman Empire. But to some extent, it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, because the point is really just that you know that the King of England is being held captive by some other basically Christian power. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, and as long as you get that across, I don't think the rest of it necessarily matters that much. No, no. And you're right. This this is not a topic in the other Oh no. No. And I, I like that. Yeah. Starting off somewhat strong. Yeah. So starting yeah. starting good. I will talk about the details of this later. I can't possibly get into all of the details of it now. It does go downhill, however, it's relatively quickly in the historical accuracy sense, in that we have a very heavy emphasis on this being a Norman versus Saxon conflict, which will be discussed. But we learn that the Saxons are even less unhappy about this whole situation than poor Longchamp, who who has been uh, ousted as regent, because the Saxons are being quite heavily squeezed and otherwise harassed by John, who is delighted to hear of Richard's captivity. We get some scenes of him uh, or of his people oppressing the Saxons. We have them take it, take some pigs and they say, what are you going to pay for this? And he goes, oh, pay, pay. That's all you Saxons think about is getting paid for the goods and services you provide. (laughs) How dare you? I mean, it's almost like wanting a $15 minimum wage. How dare they want sustenance? Pure socialism. Yeah. We also learned that freeborn people are being enslaved. We then get our first introduction of Robin Hood through a scene where we see a poacher taking down a deer. 
a scene that will be heavily repeated in future Robin Hood films. But our poacher takes down this deer and then comes face to face with a group of nobles led by Guy of Gisborne, who is wearing a thing that looks very much like a crown, which is interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of the wardrobe is just this idea and it's more simplified in 1938 of we need to give these very strong visual cues uh-huh. of separating these classes. Yes. And that is very, very heavily done visually in ways that I sometimes like because the nobility are wearing uh, very bright colors typically and uh, often and like a lot of them are wearing things that are like very shiny. You've talked about colors in previous episodes and how yes. a lot. Yes, of- I think we talked about it in the Lion and Winter episode. Yeah, I think so. But and how a lot of medieval depictions are very drab. Everyone's in, gray and sad. Yeah, when in fact the era had a lot of color. Mm-hmm. But the reason for this, my suspicion is that this was a $2 million movie. That is a right. shit ton of movie in 1938. Money in And a lot of that presumably went to the fact that it is, as it says at the beginning, filmed in Technicolor. Right. And <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, this was one of it might have been the most expensive Warner Brothers movie at that time and a lot of it was based on the fact that it was in Technicolor because that was not common at that point black and white was the norm it would continue to be the norm for at least another 10 years so the showing off that Technicolor was really important for this movie and you see it because it's, it's it's I mean, the colors are gorgeous in it. Yeah, I mean, so it totally makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you you got you got that Technicolor, use it. But the nobility in particular are very brightly colored and the peasantry is often more brown with the exception of Robin Hood's people that Will, Will Scarlet is aptly scarlet and Robin and his top people have some, you know, very prominent bright green. But when we see the vaguely oppressed peasants, they're sort of in brown typically. Right, right. Yeah, I actually really enjoy the color coding of Robin Hood and Will Scarlet. Yes. <laughs> it's just, it's so wonderfully blatantly obvious. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, all right, yeah, no, we're not going to mix them up. We're all good. Yeah. <laughs> Gabe Gisborne is about to put this poor gentleman to death. Robin, however, arrives to rescue him and uh, let him know that we're, that Richard will eventually be back and will fix everything. They confront Gisborne and manage to drive him away and threaten to shoot him. And our Saxon peasant poacher is uh, very, very happy and swears loyalty to Robin Hood. That was quick and easy. Right? Like, I mean, yeah, he saved your life, but how? what else do you know about this guy? Right? Like you just met him. Like, yeah, he could be a total dick other than this. Right. Yeah. But I guess if somebody saves your life, you kind of feel like you owe him. Probably. And I actually like this in some ways, given that I find it very odd. So in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the poacher is a little kid. Right. Or, you know, like 10, 12, however old he is, but youngish. This kid doesn't even have the decency to tell his father, Little John, when Little John is fighting Robin Hood. Hey, this is a guy who just saved your son's life. Yeah. Maybe don't kill him. Yeah. And that movie was high on drama. Indeed. Like, how can we make this more dramatic than we ever thought possible? Christian Slater's your brother. I, man, I, <laughs> it came up in the episode, but I hate that plotline. I hate that plotline very much. Well, it's, it's not. Carmen good. agrees. Yeah. Yeah. Carmen, you think that's dumb too, don't you? Good kitty. She has good opinions about movies. We then are taken to Nottingham Castle, which is the stronghold of Guy of Gisborne. And by the way, so we do have the Sheriff of Nottingham in this movie, and he's kind of the sidekick to Guy of Gisborne, which is interesting and not what you usually see. 
Right, right. And really played for comic effect. Yeah, he's like the person who like makes dumb comments, basically. He makes dumb comments and he wears his little flower crown. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that actor played Mr. Collins in an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. And you can absolutely see it. I can 100% see that. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. So yes, we are in Nottingham Castle for a party. The castle is usually cold and miserable but now it has new warmth because uh, we have other people showing up john has showed up for a big party they are chatting about uh, essentially what's going on and their duty as normans since they have a deep sense of their particular norman as opposed to saxon identity it is their duty to preserve the realm by supporting king john there's also a very good dog we have an irish wolfhound who is eating some scraps off the floor do you have a dog yep Yep, I'm always in favor of dog acting. John says cheerily that this is what we Normans like. Good food, good company, and a beautiful woman by my side. And John has this initially, it seems almost oddly, for flirtatious interaction with Marion, who is, I believe, his cousin. Niece, cousin, something? Something like supposedly. that. Yeah, but I think also the assumption is that, you know, that kind of thing was okay in the medieval era. Right, I mean, you know, it's not like there weren't people who married their wards, and as long as you get that papal dispensation, it's not like you didn't marry your cousin. Yeah. Ultimately, however, he is uh, not, it seems, seeking Marion for himself, but is uh, trying to wingman for (laughs) Keith Gisborne. And he's not doing it particularly well. Right. He's uh, trying to sell him, and Marion's basically like, I don't know. He's a Norman. I guess that's what he's supposed to be. Yeah. And John's like, but he's already in love with you. And she's like, eh. I mean, and I, I don't know how old she's supposed to be at this point, but de Havilland would have been like 21 when they filmed it. Right. So really young from that perspective. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, and I think that makes yeah. sense mm-hmm. character wise that she'd be early 20s. Yeah, but Give Gisborne is clearly not. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. Which also is not entirely out of the norm, especially for the nobility, that there would be these big age disparities between husband and wife. Right. But it certainly also explains why she's maybe not enthused. Mm-hmm. Because she does also, at this point, it's worth noting, at this point, she seems to like John just fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, they... He's her uncle or whatever, and they get along. Yeah, she's, I think, depicted as being very comfortable within her environment. Yes, she's part of this uh, Norman noble culture, and that's where she belongs, and these are her people. John is her his family, and she seems to get on with him just fine, and she's certainly not enthused about Guy of Gisborne. She doesn't hate him or anything. Yeah. They start by saying, by trying to insist that the Saxons are going to not protest too much because so many have been hanged. And I like also that John comments that you shouldn't hang too many or there won't be any any people left to work the fields. And I appreciate that because that's also something that you see in medieval movies are these people who are like, well, this village has been mildly annoying to me, so I'm just going to murder everyone in it. And if you murder that people, you that many people, you don't have anybody to work your fields, to work your fields or pay your taxes. Yeah. And that's actually a common theme throughout population control into the 20th century. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is part of where my research is now going is looking at population mm. control mm. so yeah it's it's common in, in, and it's common everywhere you know you need people to work the land you need people to pay the taxes you need revenue right so the gratuitous mass murder of peasants is not something that really happened on that scale and it's something that wouldn't really make sense to do for very good practical reasons 
regardless of ethics. So I, I like that little detail. They are, however, aware that Robin of Loxley is their one remaining problem since he is setting himself up as a protector of the people, and they have not been successful in capturing him, particularly due to his impressive archery skills. And then there he is! And he's got a deer! Casually strolls in with a deer over his shoulders. Which is, I guess, the referent for men in tights is that it has a uh, comedic version of this particular scene. Right, right. I would actually like to know the tight budget for this movie. Yeah. Because there are so many tights. There um, are a lot of tights, yes. There, there's, it's, it's really kind of glaring. And also the rhinestones on Robin Hood's sleeves. Yes, right? It's very fancy. He's very fancy for a man of the people. He is. And so that's the second costume that they designed mm-hmm. for him. They, Errol Flynn did not like the first mm-hmm. after they were shooting already. So they had to refilm a bunch of stuff in the new costume. And apparently this is the improvement. The rhinestones. Hmm. Get a little, little flair. It is a little bit there. of flair. Yep. John thinks he is very cool. Yeah. He pops in. John's just saying, like, you're a bold fellow. I like you. Gisborne seems to be less enthusiastic, as does Marion at this point. Marion is very much like, who, who, who is this jerk? I mean, he's peacocking, basically. And, and he interrupted her dinner. He did, and that's rude. Yeah. I wouldn't like some guy who, like, showed up and started, like, yelling about stuff in the middle of me eating my mutton. While dumping a dead deer carcass. Yeah, that sounds very unpleasant. Yeah. John encourages him to go ahead and uh, sit down in front, uh, across from him and displaces uh, poor Sir Ivor. Robin uh, lays out his political program, uh, talking about the suffering of the Saxons and uh, how they have very little to eat now that uh, his uh, now that the tax collectors have uh, gone through have gone through their villages and uh, complains that they are all overtaxed and overworked and then punished with harsh violence if they protest or if they are unwilling to pay what is deemed their share of taxation. We also learn that there is a ransom demand from Leopold of 150,000 gold marks for Richard and that as a result taxes are about to be raised and that they will be turned over to John and uh, Robin is suspicious and suggests that perhaps they're really not planning on sending all that money to ransom Richard maybe they're just gonna hold on to it and use it to help establish John's power base in England that that seems like a safe assumption yeah seems about right yeah he really is peacocking, right? Because he, he's kind of giving this whole political speech and his his positioning is so interesting too, right? Because he's literally, he's leaning back in this uh, fancy, I think actually probably aesthetically a bit late, probably more like 15th century, but be that as it may, he's uh, leaning back in this very fancy looking wood chair while uh, giving this whole dramatic speech and letting John know that his plan is to foment revolt and get these Saxons to rise up against their very much ethnically distinct Norman overlords. It is. It's, it's the, actually, it's one thing I caught while watching it this time is just this ethnic divide that they're, they're forming here. That's, yeah, I'm going to yeah. talk about that bit. Yeah, yeah. John at this point has, uh, despite his deep liking for Robin Hood, has had enough. Somebody attacks from behind and Robin manages to avoid that and then basically like somersaults backwards in his chair. It's a, it's a fun it's a fun fight scene. The choreography has him making a lot of use of the furniture. Yeah, the action in this movie helps, I think, pace it very well. Yeah, it's a movie that really, it doesn't feel, I mean, it's only an hour and 40 minutes. So especially given some things that I've watched recently, it's not overly long, but it also, I think, feels like it moves uh, at a good clip. The director is Michael Curtiz, and he mm-hmm. was he was very good at that kind of thing. Yeah. 
also directed Casablanca, which is mm. like an hour and 45 minutes or something. So he, he's, right. he's really good at efficiently pacing his movies. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, it's a, and this, and this fight scene in particular, I think is a good example of that. It has a lot of interesting things in it. It doesn't feel like it goes on too long, which I sometimes find to be the case with some fight scenes that they seem like they last ages. Yeah. And this one seems like a reasonable length of time and that it does a good job of showcasing Robin's skills in entertaining ways. Yeah. And also that he's not shy about just killing people. Yeah. I mean, it's the 1938 version of killing people. So. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so there's like no blood, right? Killing people right. means he like shoots an arrow into somebody's chest and they die instantly and rather quietly. Yeah. It's like, uh, and then, I mean, no one can actually see me, but I kind right. of clutched my chest and <laughs> leaned back on my couch. But yeah. yeah, it's this overly dramatic, you know, with no blood. But yeah, and it's, 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 but yeah, he does actually pretty much just go ahead and start killing people really early yeah, on. He's fine with that. He does manage to escape, leaving Gisborne and everybody just like rather confused about the whole process. The guards do continue their pursuit and uh, Robin and his buddy who, uh, who he rescued earlier, who is, I believe named much, much the Miller as you do. Yep. (laughs) And much the Miller is told to pass on the word to other Saxons and encourage them to rebel, which we get this montage. And John, meanwhile, has proclaimed that uh, in every village that this Saxon Loxley is an outlaw. So again, on this ethnic divide, it is interesting that Robin is presented as being part of this oppressed ethnic group, despite also being identified as a member of the nobility. Right. He hands over the death sentence to Gisborne, who promises to have him dangling within a week, which, as we shall see, is overly optimistic. Yeah. Unsurprisingly. I mean, the movie is called The Adventures of Robin Hood, not The Adventures of Gieve Gisborne. Right. Gieve's not going to win, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) He's a bad Gieve. Yep. (laughs) Also, I've definitely made that terrible pun on a previous Robin Hood episode. (laughs) You should be proud of yourself for it, though. Thank you. Thank you very much. We have more of our adventures with the Merry Men in particular. We learn that Robin has a good time sleeping in the woods, while Will Scarlet does not, since he's sort of picking acorns out of the crevices of his body and being woken in the night by hooting owls. He's artistic. He just wants to play his his music. He, he's delicate, we'll say. Yes. Because yes. his bit in this next scene where Robin meets and ultimately will win over little John is uh, great because so uh, uh, they're at a bridge and John is uh, the guard defending the bridge and he's got his quarter staff and uh, says that, you know, only pe- the only people can pass are people who are able to best him. He and Robin fight. Robin goes and gets a staff because it's not fair for him to have a bow when uh, John just has a staff. While they're fighting, Will just settles in and relaxes and starts like strumming the lute. Yeah, he's having a great time. Jauntily strumming the lute. Just, and that's just, just I- kind of fun. You know, just from that visual, you know that this is not an outdoorsy guy. Right, yeah. But his best friend is outdoorsy. Yeah, he's an indoor kid. I get it. Yeah, yeah, I get it too. But it's also such a difference to how Will Scarlet is normally portrayed in these. Oh, yeah. I would take this over Christian Slater any any day, personally, so. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I this version of Will Scarlet is just fine. He's perfectly enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. he's a nice, kind of soft, thoughtful boy. Yes, adds to the jaunty music. I mean, which I didn't 
mentioned we were doing the intro stuff, but the score for this movie is fantastic. Oh yeah, definitely. It's very fun. Robin and John, uh, they kind of hit each other for a bit and then sort of like, what, like, I think they both fall into the water. Robin and, does. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's right. Robin does. And, yeah. uh, and they, and then John helps and they make friends. It's nice. Mm-hmm. Robin introduces himself and John is thrilled because he always wanted to join Robin Hood the whole time. He knew about Robin and how cool he was. So he's very happy that he had this whole interaction. One thing I actually like about that, about Robin just falling in the water and laughing it off. It could so easily easily be some like toxic masculinity bullshit of having his pride wounded at being bested when he's supposed to be the hero. But it's like, no, you're fun. I like you. Come, come hang out. And I also especially like that because that is an aspect of toxic masculinity that I think is arguably more modern than medieval in that in the Middle Ages, there is, I think, this real emphasis in a lot of, and this isn't isn't Robin Hood necessarily, but I'm thinking about courtly love literature and chivalric literature. There is this sense of uh, the guy who beats you, you kind of like and respect them. Yeah. And it was, I mean, they went into it trying to make it as fair a fight as possible. He yeah. said, okay, you don't, I, you know, I should not have the advantage over you. Let's put yeah. this even ground as we fight on a tree trunk. And there was a lot of emphasis throughout on the honorable nature of Robin, right? That he keep, like, people keep dropping his sword while they're fight, dropping their swords while fighting against him. And he'll always, like, stop and pick up the sword and hand it back to the other guy. Yeah. So he really has a kind of deep sense of fairness that is emphasized and that he's, uh, he's kind of chill. He doesn't, he doesn't mind that he got bested. It's okay. Yeah. And it sets up nicely what the relationship is with Robin Hood and his merry men. Absolutely. And I think they, okay, I guess this was what it is, is that a number of more recent adaptations introduce what I see as unnecessary tension into the relationships within the merry men that I think is to some extent there out of a attempt to distinguish them from one another a bit more or just add drama. And I don't think it needs to be there. Yeah, because I think in the more recent ones, the merry men are not merry. Yeah, exactly. They're like hardened and miserable. Yeah. So, I mean, and I, I was going to I said we'd, I'd get to this when we talk about the rating system. But one of the reasons I like about this one is it doesn't take itself that seriously. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is meant to be a popcorn matinee movie. This is meant to, right. you know, for you and your family, 1938, it's a Depression-era audience. You're meant, if you're going to spend the money to go to a movie, go have fun for an hour and 40 minutes. That's what it's right. meant to do. Yeah, and I like that. And, you know, and I like in general that this isn't the kind of grim, dark medieval everything is gray and unhappy and like there's a little of the everybody's just being murdered all the time but at yeah. least they're also having parties right they have feasts we'll yeah so I, I like the evenness yeah yeah the royal decree about robin's uh, uh about robin as being an outlaw is announced but meanwhile the saxons are not interested in that they're busy spreading the word about how they should all meet robin in sherwood forest at the appropriately named gallows oak <laughs> <laughs> which is very kind of a snarky touch right to gather and uh prepare for a rebellion robin inspires them with a speech about all the suffering that they have experienced under john and asks them to swear to steal from the rich but only to give to the poor to fight against their oppressors but always maintain loyalty to richard which is a constant feature throughout that they have heavy loyalty to richard 
Okay, he went off to the Crusades, got captured, but whatever. It's interesting because there is a criticism of that later, right? But yes. I mean, it's this move that often gets made of, well, first of all, the kind of almost like deus ex machina, like when Richard comes back, that everything will be fixed overnight. But it also does fit into this narrative of uh, Robin is an outlaw, but he's never actually ultimately that dangerous to the status quo because he's ultimately loyal to the person who's really the rightful king. Right. He's not trying to foment revolution. Yeah. He's he's actually trying to stop a coup. Yeah. It's this interesting where that like Robin has the potential in theory to be a real revolutionary socialist figure. And he's redistributing wealth and he very rarely is. Yeah. Which is, I think, absolutely a choice that he is, uh, he's ultimately is just, yeah, on, he's on the side of good governance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's something almost kind of profoundly conservative that like, well, he just, he just wants the person who was king before to come back. There's a parallel to people voting for Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly, right? That most people, or a lot of, a lot of people in the Democratic Party they don't actually want meaningful, very deep change. What they want is essentially was a return to the Obama era status quo. I mean, probably to some extent that's what we're getting, which is an improvement, sure, over the last four years. Right. But it is. It's it's wanting that comfort of what we had before and pretending that we can go back to normal. Right. And uh, that's yeah. obviously better than deeply rapacious conservatism that hates the poor. Yes. But it's also not a real, uh, it's also not making it, he's also not making any real lasting change. Right. So, yes. Yeah, so, so, yes, Robin is the Democratic Party. <laughs> the, the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. Good job, he, Robin. Oh, he's, he exactly is because he's, he's the woke rich man. Yeah. He, he is basically Bradley Whitford in Get Out telling Daniel yep. Kaluuya that if he could have voted for Obama a third time, he would have. Right. I'm just voting for Richard again. <laughs> We learn that John's reign is becoming yet more murderous, and the Saxons increasingly are deciding it that they prefer death to oppression. We see a few examples of this. We see a bunch of Saxons being hanged to the sound of a of uh, one of the knights doing some just cartoonish evil laughter, which is cut off by them being shot in the chest. We also have a just like pretty just like quick light introduction of an attempted rape. Yeah, but honestly, for 1938, there's what was known as the Hayes Production Code mm-hmm. that essentially governed what could and couldn't be made. It wasn't just, okay, you've made this movie, you need to cut this scene. The right. people behind the Hayes Production Code would look at a script and say, no, you have to cut this, no, you have to cut this. There's a movie mm-hmm. they made in 1942 where they said, we want to adapt this book. And the Hayes people said, you absolutely cannot adapt this book because it, it has homosexuality and promiscuity and incest. As my best friend said, it's melodrama the Russians would be proud of. Mm-hmm. To me, it's always interesting that this scene actually is included, that is actually there, that there mm-hmm. is a depiction of what is very clearly intended to be sexual violence toward that woman. Yes. You know, on the one hand, I, I tend to not love when there's just like a slight like plot rape that's just a way of a, a shorthand for saying these people are bad. I tend to not adore that, especially when it's this kind of unnamed uh, non-entity of a female character. Well, I mean, it's the lazy, let's depict that we're in the medieval era thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, at least it's not the use for Noctis, but... Yeah. No, but it is, it's, it's a, probably the go-to medieval trope to show just how bad shit was. 
Exactly. So we have that included, but that guy gets murdered and we learn that Robin is, Robin's racking up a bit of a body count. He's, he's not afraid to kill people. And we've, we've lost Sir Ivor, the one of uh, John's people other than uh, our main two that I actually know the name of, because he's the one who took Robin, who's a, whose seat Robin took at the party. Right. But, you know, as they say, and nothing of value was lost. Yeah, I would say rest in peace, Sir Ivor, but I guess I don't actually care. Yeah, he's just kind of there. And presumably, I mean, based on what we see, I mean, the people who got killed, like, they're not doing anything good, so. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, you can't be that upset. Robin then adds another of the team in the form of Friar Tuck. He runs into him. He is the Friar of Fountains Abbey, a man known for his piety, but also his swordsmanship. I'm skeptical. You don't necessarily see that on display, no. No, you don't. And also, it uh, does not make a great deal of sense. No, it does not. For a friar to be renowned for their swordsmanship. It's not really really a thing. No, no. There is a tuxedo rental chain in California called Friar Tux. (laughs) That's good. I like that. Good job. Good fun. (laughs) I'm here for it. I always enjoy it. Yeah. I find the Friar Tuck character stressful to me in particular. As a medievalist, for ways that I'll uh, I'll reference uh, at some point, I'll, I'll reference a bit later. Uh, I'll mention a couple of details about this scene. He, you know, he's supposed to be there, and he sort of is what he is. And it's not necessarily the filmmaker's fault that the Robin Hood legend is fundamentally at odds with historical reality and dates. Friar Tuck is sleeping. Robin goes and grabs his uh, his mutton le- his mutton joint out of his hands then also however replaces uh, in his life he's in the middle of, he was in the middle of fishing and then fell asleep but he actually caught a fish and robin drops the fish in his lap and then kind of goes and sneaks behind a tree the fire is very excited he says you know it's a miracle that he's he's got these this fish it's you know very like new jesus. testament yeah yeah it's yeah exactly. exactly it's like jesus but just like a you know fewer fishes right still, right no no loaves pretty good but- then he sees Robin and is very upset that he's taken his mutton joint and uh, uh, says he really has nothing to give, being a uh, friar and vowed to poverty. Robin goes for a bit, gets him to carry him on his back, and they have a little sword fight in the water, which is not not the best sword fight. Uh, and this is this is one of our moments where Robin does, he drops a sword and Robin gives it back to him. Yeah, Robin bests him, but but you know then promises you know some some really good food if he agrees to join him, and uh, that's that's basically all you need. I I would hope a man of the cloth would be motivated by something other than good food. I mean, the good okay. food matters. The food matters. It, no, it does. It does. Also, they're in medieval England, so I don't think the food's probably that great. I don't know. Like they actually probably if they're they probably have decent like meat at least. Yeah. Probably yeah. relatively fresh vegetables potentially. Yeah. Not a whole lot of seasoning. Oh no, too much seasoning. Really? Oh yeah. Medieval oh. people really loved them some spices. Okay. Yeah. So if anything, it's actually that they have combinations of spices that seem to us excessive and weird, as well as a lot of combinations of sweet and savory flavors that we also in some ways would today find weird. Okay. So it's a very highly spiced cuisine. Uh, Arguably like North African cuisine is potentially the closest to medieval to medieval European cuisine in terms of things that, you know, are around. Food history is really interesting. Yes, it is. Uh, you know, I mean, these people are like in the woods, so I don't know what exactly is going to be happening with them. But in terms of, yeah, medieval cuisine in general, it would have been, yeah, very, very highly spiced. 
not what I would have expected, but also I'm kind of thinking a little bit anachronistically about the reputation that British food has now. Yes, and that is actually a reputation that comes from much later. I think it's actually like 20th century and it's actually, I think might even be post-war because it has to do a lot, if I'm remembering correctly. And so, you know, somebody can correct me on this because I'm not a specialist. And so I'm basically going off things I remember that I learned like five years ago. But my understanding is that it's, it's comes a lot out of uh, the fact that World War II rationing continued for a while after the war ended. And that basically just, like fucked British cuisine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, on the continent as well, the rationing yeah. continued for a very, very long time, but yeah, definitely in Britain, there's a, a history professor here who begins a lecture by saying, you know, I was born in 1941 and my father was killed on the Russian front and I should probably t- be taller, but we didn't have enough milk growing up because it was rationed. This is how he introduces himself to students, which is pretty much how you find out that his father fought for the Wehrmacht. Mm. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, but no, the rationing makes total sense. Yeah, so so I believe that's the case in terms of that being where the reputation and to some extent reality of British food being bad. Right, because otherwise the food in England is all colonial carryovers. Right. Yeah. yeah. In the Middle Ages, and I believe this is true in the early modern period as well, still, English food is not really very distinct in a lot of ways that there is very much, especially when you're talking about high cuisine, which is what we know most about because that's what got written down. There right. seem to have been a lot of similarities uh, across both con- uh, Western continental Europe, but also uh, England as well. Okay. So that Western Europe in general arguably had a kind of shared high cuisine and didn't have that distinction between regions to quite the same extent that we see today. That makes sense to me. He's excited for the food. And we also get some uh, some fat shaming of uh, yes. poor Friar Tuck. That, which... That's fairly common for Eugene Pallet for the roles mm. that he plays, because he's always supporting. Very often he's, always, he's in comedies. And very often he is the butt of jokes. Uh-huh. But yes, there at some point there's a line where, you know, Robin says like, he's one of us. And somebody's like, he looks like three of us. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's like, mm-mm. Yep. So not excellent. The Merry Men then set into motion a little plot to mess with Gisborne and collect on some collected taxation. They're uh, climbing up into the trees. They've got these uh, nice little kind of like leaf garlands that will double as both uh, camouflage, but also as ropes to swing down from. It's very fun. It looks like they're having a good time. It's really acrobatic. Yeah. Yeah, And it's very, and like, it's all very well done. Like it all looks very nice. Yeah. And this is also a pretty good action scene of uh, the kind of different parts of this effort to kind of cut in between uh, this uh, this train, basically escorting wealth and eventually capture as well, Gisborne and Nottingham and Marion. Right. And Marion, I will say, interestingly, also does not seem to hate Gisborne at this point. She lightly mocks him for the fact that he could not beat Robin at the party. Right. But... It seems almost like a friendly mockery. I, you know, I'm not sure she wants to marry him, but I don't think she hates him. No, I think she kind of sees him as a person who is of the same social class, has a very similar background, and so they can kind of relate on that level. Yeah, he's fine. Yeah. True. At this point. 
Robin's men do end up, uh, of course, capturing them and the battle ensues. Robin welcomes Marion to Sherwood. Uh, there is this kind of little line where he says, I've often heard you'd give me a warm welcome if we ever met again, which is a weird, weird touch. Yeah. She is very then defensive about this, as is her uh, lady-in-waiting Bess, who also is uh, is having having some good t- having a good time. Bess ends up chatting with Much, who uh, says he has never been out walking with a female before. For the thirties, maybe I'll allow the term female. Yeah. In a way, I wouldn't now. Yeah. Also, this is as much flirting as she will be capable of with someone as awkward as he is. Right. Yeah. She is flirting with him. Oh yeah, absolutely. He just doesn't know what to do. I, I mean, he, he's, he's very clearly never talked to a woman, a woman before. Yeah, I think female for considering 1938, we kind of have to let a few things like, okay, yeah, let we that wouldn't one. do that now, but it's not as bad as some of the things they did then. I don't think at least that word in the 30s was quite as heavily coded as being only something terrible people say. No, no. As it is now. So. Yeah. It's it's fine. It doesn't doesn't sound great, but I'm sure it's fine. And also says that they've never tickled a lady's fancy before, which seems a little risque for the 30s. Yes, at this point in the 30s. There are movies earlier in the 30s before the production code that are like, whoa, you got away with that. Right. But at this point in the 30s, yeah, tickle tickle your fancy is it's it's a little 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 uh it's yeah. a little bit more than you might think. Yeah. But Bess is flirting with him and also lets him know that she has been married five times. <laughs> yes having fun Uh, good for her good for her i like Bess. Mm -hmm. i mean because you know what happened to the other five right (laughs) (laughs) good job Bess. robin and his men are having a grand old time enjoying all the food and the fine fabrics that they have now collected from the tax collectors marion insists that she finds it all revolting while robin tries to talk her into not hating poor people (laughs) right yes but she is increasingly rather charmed by him she is skeptical of the claim that this treasure is going to be used to pay richard's ransom but basically robin you know kind of yells out hey what are we going to do with this treasure and everybody does immediately say oh it's for richard which is at least you know it shows that at least they're very well organized yeah they have they have their own little society there and I think um the parallel is somewhat for me how they try to depict you know this little forest society in Robin Hood Prince of Thieves yes and even though they're building huts and tree houses and everything in that one which there were play sets for that (laughs) Mm -hmm. right this is more cohesive yeah absolutely yeah this is a more makes sense Yes, this is a more cohesive display of unity than we see, you know, trying to build their own little Sherwood town. Right, and I think that also makes sense because, again, we they're not doing the weird little gritty thing where you have to introduce this conflict amongst the merry men to add extra drama and make the movie 25 minutes longer. Right. And she takes Marion off to go and uh, look, at all, look at all the starving children. So she uh, feels, feels more sympathetic to them. Yeah, it's so and they're people. Yeah, they're Mm -hmm. people. They're hungry. So she's kind of warming up, but she uh, she finds it odd that he has made the choice to do all of this instead of living in comfort and security. So, you know, they're they're sort of 
bonding, I think this actually does a slightly better job than some other Robin Hoods uh, of having them actually have a conversation where you can see them making a connection. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which I think is one of the things that I've always liked about it as well, is that the relationship actually feels natural, a little bit more natural, and also doesn't have this backstory behind it. Yeah, right. Which never really plays particularly well. The backstory usually feels like an excuse for not actually developing their relationship in the present. Yeah, yeah. So to actually have the scene that is based on a conversation. It's not just based on seeing each other across a room and, you know, heart eyes and all of a sudden I'm in love with you, which is pretty common for this particular era of filmmaking. That easy love story is very much what happens Mm -hmm. in a lot of those, in a lot of movies from this era. So the fact that they actually have a conversation and they start meeting on an ideological level. Right. And I like that. I like that they actually don't, or that she at least does not like him when they first meet. Yeah. She's she's very iffy about him. I mean, she just does not trust him at all which is that that is accurate that you probably shouldn't trust the guy who comes into your dining hall with a deer on his shoulders right yeah I wouldn't like that guy but yeah so it actually kind of it kind of makes sense they're bonding and he and Nottingham have uh, been stripped of their regular clothing and instead have been given some peasant rags and flower crowns yeah one of them takes to that more than the other yes not Nottingham's having kind of a good time he, he, he likes his flower crown. He likes his flower crown, which, you know, it's very pretty. It is. Someone took time to make yeah. that. Yeah. Guy is, not, Guy is not having a good time. Guy is very grumpy. He doesn't have a good time for the entire movie. Oh, no. Guy has never had fun in his life. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> Robin does ultimately keep all of the wealth, but eventually does let all of the people go. I mean, presumably a couple died in the battle at the outset, but uh, all of the survivors, including our high value prisoners are to be freed. Marion gets a horse and an escort, whereas uh, Guy and Nottingham are told that they can go home on foot and in what they are currently wearing. And Much also goes and joins the escort so that he can hang out with Bess, his new kind of girlfriend. I'm, I'm really here for that relationship. It's, you know, it's sweet. It's, it's, it's yeah. a very kind of, it's genuine, I think. Yeah, they seem and to be having a, a nice time. It's a they seem nice, like nice people. It's a nice, sweet little side romance. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm on board. Mm-hmm. John is, of course, not pleased to learn that all of these taxes that they've collected have been lost, and even less that they made no progress whatsoever in terms of defeating Robin Hood in any way. No, he humiliated them. I mean, yeah, sending so them- Embarrassing sending, and terrible. Absolutely. Sending them home in that clothing and with and on foot is humiliating. Yes. And, and because oh, yes. we've already established that there is a sense of honor with Robin, I mm-hmm. think that that makes the humiliation that, that much of a Absolutely. So at this point, they come up with their cunning plan that they're going to attract him with an archery tournament at which Marion will present the golden arrow that they'll be giving as a prize. Seems like a waste of resources, but okay. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, so the archery tournament is obviously a very common motif. I find it unnecessarily elaborate and something that it obviously always does work or there wouldn't be a story, but it doesn't actually make sense to me that it would work. No, it doesn't. Also, I think that every Renaissance fair has designed what they look like based on 
this archery tournament in this movie. Absolutely, yes. Because this archery tournament looks like every Renaissance fair I've ever been to. It does. Yeah. Yeah, that's very much the vibe. Like three in two different states. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've been, I've been to a few. It's definitely, yep, no, this is, this is what they look like. I should have gone to the one in Germany. Oh yeah. That would be fun. I I should have seen how the Germans do a Renaissance fair. Although they weren't calling it a Renaissance fair. They actually said Mittelalter, so Middle Ages. Yeah. I've actually noticed that in Europe that they're more likely to call them medieval festivals. Well, probably because they, you know, let's hope they know the difference between the medieval era and the Renaissance because the Renaissance fair here doesn't. Oh no. Oh no, it does not. (laughs) Robin of course however does go to the archery tournament which is an extremely stupid decision arrives dressed as an old man got all of his friends and I love that Marianne just immediately like this look on her face like she immediately knows it's him oh yeah yeah because he just looks like himself okay because they keep calling him like you know that like old man like or that like I don't know the the tinker tinker, or whatever but it's like he he just he just has a different a different like jacket that's his entire disguise yeah it's just a different outfit but the same swagger yeah and also the same like face right so this is when i when i mentioned earlier that i think when you know he overacts he chews the scenery but he's very genuine about it Mm -hmm. to the point where it's charming and you just go along with it and i think that that is very much on display in this scene he's charming it's very fun it's a fun scene marion is uh, watching uh, intrigued as uh, she sees Robin. John is, uh, I think, I think at some point, you know, they're like, do you find this interesting? And she's like, uh, yes, they're very good. And John's like, you'll find it much more interesting later on. He's so ominous. And that's, Claude Rains is also chewing scenery in this part. Oh, yeah. But so deliciously. Yeah, no, he's very good. Yeah, he he and Basil Rathbone are both doing like variations of the mustache twirly villain, but absolutely, it, it no, looks they're like very they're having villains. fun. It looks yeah. like they're having fun doing it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The one bit of this film that seems like it went on more slowly than was strictly necessary was this tournament itself. Yeah, in how often they you know show people running toward the target, moving the target, bringing the target back, taking the arrows out. It's a little much. Yeah. Yeah. And they keep announcing the names of all of these other random people that we've never heard of before and we'll never hear of again who oh, are also well, competing in the archery tournament. Like, I should not remember the name Philip of Ara <laughs> from this scene. But I yeah. do. I absolutely do. Yeah. Owen the Welshman. Right. For a long time, whenever I heard the name Owen in my head was Owen the Welshman because I'd seen this movie so many times this is also the scene where if you look really carefully in the background there's a car driving by I did not catch that yeah it took me years to find it but yeah yeah in the background there's a car driving by the forest Sherwood Forest to me looks very much like the forests around Los Angeles which is where they filmed Mm. it so it makes sense yeah I'm, I'm sure it does right as a Southern California person that to me is, yeah, I know that. That's L.A. Yeah. That level of, yes, I know this is clearly L.A. when they're trying to convince me otherwise. The only other movie that happened in was very, very recently, and it was Promising Young Woman with Carrie Mulligan, where they tried mm-hmm. to convince me that Los Angeles was Ohio. Nope. The guards are closing in, and John's like, oh, do you think Robin notices? And I'm watching some like, I hope he does. They're not subtle. 
they're really not. And we're led to believe he is not stupid. And I also find it fun that Nottingham, who is stupid, is in the midst of all of this. He's just getting really into the tournament and, uh, you know, seeing the shots. And he's like, I don't know. I don't think Robin can do it. I'll bet you like a hundred marks that Philip of Ara is going to pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. Just, which is, it's funny. I mean, because it's, it's also, it's not what we're used to seeing from the sheriff of Nottingham. So I'm more than happy to laugh at his expense. Yeah, definitely. And I, I do think it is an interesting choice that they make it to emphasize uh, Guy of Gisborne as this primary antagonist and uh, really make Nottingham into this minor character. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because so thinking about, for example, like the role that Gisborne plays in going back to like the poaching scene, there are almost like word for word bits for that that get adapted that are then put in the mouth of our various sheriffs of Nottingham in uh, Prince of Thieves and Men in Tights. Yeah, I think that you can really see in this movie where a lot of our conventions about Robin Hood on film have come from. Absolutely. Which is one of the reasons I think it's it's worth watching to see where it started and to see how it was done well. Yes. Robin is ultimately arrested and is tried such as it is and the charges are read out, you know, your, your treason, your robbery, whatever. She also says, haven't you forgotten a count or two? Isn't it illegal now to be loyal to the king and to care about people? <laughs> it's illegal to be a nice guy now, right? It's like, so he's he's definitely the moderate Democrat in his politics, <laughs> but his rhetoric is Bernie bro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he announces that Robin is to be hanged, to which uh, Robin goes, oh, I'm sure you think this sentence extremely lenient. Thank you. Marianne is uh, sitting there and she is very sad and she's got a a whole little team of ladies hanging out and being sad with her. She does, but her dress is lovely. It is, it is. It's a very nice dress. Also, this is the most women we ever have in this movie. Yes, it is, which is actually something I'm going to talk about later in terms of some spaces that are oddly male. So this is our kind of one moment where like Marianne's got like a bunch of lady friends who are all hanging out and uh, watching Robin be put on trial. Mm Mm-hmm. So Marion knows that Bess is uh, dating much. Uh, the fact that his name is much, I find anxiety producing. Um, <laughs> I've had a very long day. And uh, tells her to help send a message, uh, which she, in order to do so, arrives at the Saracen's Head Tavern, which, oof, is a name choice. I... <laughs> It's not necessarily inaccurate. I was I did a little digging. I think there's at least some possibility that taverns with this with that sort of name might have gone back to this period. They certainly exist a bit later. So it's not as it's not necessarily inaccurate to the period, but it is uh, a choice which I think just given its unpleasantness and racism, a film being made now might have not chosen that particular tavern name. Yeah, I don't know if it would have tracked as being racist in 1938 yeah i imagine it didn't yeah but now it's you know, sure. is not considered racist in 1939 right yeah right they were wrong they were they, they were incorrect on that one <laughs> and also on this yes this, this is, is not great more, this is the more mild but also you have to kind of you know count on of people course, knowing yes. what a saracen is i i don't know my my uh, gut for what counts as general knowledge for medieval history is uh, has been completely lost at this point. So yeah, I don't think I don't think Saracen is that widely known. I mean, no. I, I mean, my gauge is not great either, just because I tend to know a little bit more than average mm-hmm. being a historian, though not being of that 
era. Right. The most common use of Saracen I can think of right now is that there's a character on Friday Night Lights with the last name Saracen. Huh. That's interesting. A white boy from Texas. But. Hmm. Wonder if I got that. Um, But yeah, I guess it probably isn't given that I recently watched a Jeopardy. I don't watch Jeopardy that regularly, but I watched a recent-ish by which at this point I probably mean like two months ago episode because a host of a podcast that I listened to was on it and uh, there was a medieval history round which I was very excited about the contestants were less excited about this do you know how much I hope that there has never been and never will be a holocaust category on oh yeah no I feel like you don't want to know how little people know about the holocaust I I teach them I kind of do know (laughs) Well, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. And also, because anytime I tell anyone what I do, their response is to tell me that they have seen a Holocaust movie. Of course it is. Oh, you said, yeah, I just watched The Boy in Striped Pajamas. Oh, I've seen Mm. Schindler's List. I get similar, like, I get, have you seen Game of Thrones? (laughs) Or sometimes some comments about the Vikings that make me have to, like, try and parse if that person's likely to be a white supremacist. You know, I I didn't used to think that was going to be a problem for me. Right. And then things kind of changed. Uh-huh. So when I teach, I sit at my desk and if you look over my shoulder, there's a little black dot that's actually a needle point that says fuck Nazis. Great. And I sometimes worry, can my students see that? It's a little vulgar. And I thought, wow, that really shouldn't be a controversial opinion. Right. Yeah. 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 Regal made it for me. It's great. I like that. It's great. Yeah. But yes, Saracen's on Jeopardy. Yes, that's right. Oh, yes. Uh, So there was a question that was, uh, I can't remember exactly how the question was phrased, but the answer was Saladin and Richard the Lionheart. And no one knew it. You would hope they'd at least seen Robin Hood. Exactly. That's why I was so surprised. I I thought that might be approaching common knowledge. And apparently I was wrong. I mean, I would think Richard the Lionheart, maybe. I'm not so sure about Saladin. Right. I don't know. But I, I, I don't know. I feel I sort of feel like people have seen like, to crusade i don't know because he's like in all the crusade movies but what if because he's muslim they don't bother learning his name yeah you're probably right yeah that's i'm sure that's it yep so i mean they either don't bother his name or they just assume the muslim guy is named muhammad yeah yeah I think that was the one that nobody even bothered trying to answer, but it was, in general, it was, uh, nobody acquitted themselves particularly well in the medieval history round. That's too bad. Yeah. It's one, of the, one of the rare moments where I'm like, should, I should be on Jeopardy. They should go ahead. I actually applied to be on Teenage Jeopardy when I was a teenager. Oh, nice. I know apply. a lot of people who have been on Jeopardy as adults, like, in, like recently-ish. Yeah, they didn't call when I was a teenager. Oh, I was kind of bummed about I'm sorry. it. When I suggested that they make a movie about Eleanor of Aquitaine when she was actually in that region during the Crusades, they should Mm -hmm. just do that and then maybe people will actually pay attention. Right, maybe. Or they'll just pay attention to the white woman named Eleanor. Yeah, probably that. Yeah. So Robin's in in jail. He's supposed to be hung, hanged. Marion, through Bess, uh, you're getting info from Bess, uh, manages to uh, go over to uh, the... Saracen's head and get a message and inform them and inform all of them that he that Robin is about to be executed. We fade out as she explains her plan, which you know will essentially be that you know let's wait until he's on the verge of being executed and come and rescue him then, which is what they do. I'm I'm impressed by two things with this. One is that they let the woman make the plan. Yes, 
and two, that it comes together so quickly, they can just do it overnight. Oh yeah, absolutely. They're very fast about it. And also Marion has some very interesting, like yellow and purple stripes, which are fun. Yes. At the execution. Yes. She has a very good execution outfit or very interesting execution. So she outfit. I don't know yeah, if it's good, she also, but it's interesting. She also can't actually show that she's concerned about this. Yes, of course. So just be blase no. about it. No one will notice the worried look on my face. They'll only notice the garish stripes of my dress. So it's, I like to think it's strategic. I mean, she, she might not be wrong. She might not be. But yeah, so the, the men show up, start shooting at things. Robin is able to escape. Marion looks very pleased about this and is not being as subtle as she probably should be. Robin and the merry men escape and she even has a nice little smart touch at where he closes the, basically like closes the gate and then scales the wall. So he essentially traps the guards inside. Mm -hmm. It's another good action sequence. Yeah. Marion, meanwhile, is chatting with Bess about how she is in love with Robin Hood and he's, he's so nice and so pretty and she feels little tingling feelings. He was a handsome man, but mm -hmm. in this movie, he has that hairdo. He also has that mustache. Yeah, so he's known for the mustache. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. the, the mustache is not doing it for me personally. No, no. I always felt he was more handsome, clean-shaven. It's, it's just, it's like this like pencil thin mustache. And I, I, I find it deeply unattractive personally. Yeah, but... that was, so that, that's kind of the Errol Flynn mustache so if he was well, gonna have if he was gonna have a mustache in a movie that was pretty much it okay well i disagree with him with the, with the leader Flynn about his facial hair choices that's fair <laughs> we learn that uh they are very much in that she is very much in love and then conveniently he pops up on the window having overheard her talking about all of her tingly feelings yes this is their balcony scene Yes, and they have a kind of brief moment where she's like trying to be a little like, no, I was I was just joking. Mm -hmm. But then she sends Bess away, who, who seems very chill about uh, leaving her unchaperoned with a man in her bedroom. Bess has been married five times. Yeah, Bess, has, Bess knows how the world works. Yes. I love Bess. Bess is my favorite character. <laughs> Uno Connor, <laughs> that's who's playing Bess. She is fantastic. Bess is yeah. my absolute favorite. She eventually admits that she's in love and he says that he's in love with her and they kiss and they have a very nice time. We also have this bit where he's like, oh, when my real guardian Richard finds out about you being in love with me and he interrupts and says, I know, he'll, he'll make me court jester, right? Yeah, it's, it's a very flirty conversation. It is, yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's nice. And as I said, I think they have good chemistry. Thought they'd better if they put them in eight movies together. Well, right, right. I mean, you can see why they put the mini movies together. No, and it absolutely works, even for some of the lesser movies, because frankly, some mm -hmm. of them suck. Like there's one where he plays Jeb Stewart and Ronald Reagan plays George Armstrong Custer. And the antagonist of the movie is abolitionist John Brown. That is a oh, choice. Dear. Oh, yeah. dear. That is a choice. I think I'm going to give that one a miss. Yeah, Ronald Reagan's not a particularly great actor. So go, for, you know, don't, don't do that one. I mean, between that and the, and the racism. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. When, when your hero is, you know, slave owner Jeb Stewart. Right. Your villain is the abolitionist. Yeah, no, I think, I, I, I think I'm going to skip that one. Go ahead and skip it. Their last movie together, he also played a racist because that's when he played Custer. Oh, oh good. I'm glad he had lots of opportunities in his life to play inveterate racists. Yep. 
Yeah. He asks her to come with him, but Marion interestingly basically says, so I love you and I would, but I'm not going to because I've been converted to the cause and I think I can do more good by staying here and warning of treachery, which is actually a good instinct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, because we've seen that she's fully entrenched in there, she, you know, they, oh, yeah. they do not see her as a threat. No, yeah, they're, and it's, re- it's really only when they're very much kind of forced to, as we'll see shortly, mm-hmm. that it even occurs to them particularly to be concerned about her. Right. Robin then eventually does have to leave as Guy is kind of vaguely hovering at the door. He climbs down and they have a last romantic balcony kiss as you do. As you do. Then we're at another tavern and guess who's back? Richard. And okay, again, in terms of things that I actually like about this movie and compared with a lot of other Robin Hood movies, I like that Richard is in it for more than five seconds and he actually does something and has an opinion as opposed to just this like, here's Richard, everything's fixed now, goodbye. Yeah, he's really passive in most of the other adaptations or he's Sean Connery, but- Right. I mean, who's also actually pretty passive. Like he's just kind of there. And the fact that he's there means that everything is okay now. Right. But we, you know, you don't really get any sense of leadership from Richard based on the fact that he's Richard, but based on the fact that they cast right. on Connery, Absolutely. which my mother gasped in the movie theater because I'm old enough to have seen Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves in a movie theater. My mother audibly gasped because she loved Sean Connery. She <laughs> did not know that he was a raging misogynist at the time. And he also just does this like aggressively Scottish accent, which I find very amusing. Because he never had any other accent. Oh no, he always does an aggressively Scottish accent. He also does an aggressively Scottish accent in First Night as King Arthur. Yes. Which is very amusing. Yeah. But Richard is back and uh, he's got various uh, crusader friends with him. And uh, he uh, spends a little time chatting with a bishop. And he picks up on the fact that everybody is... uh, kind of afraid of the bishop and also that everybody keeps talking about this cool dude robin and he is hoping to find him the bishop uh, indicates uh, what side he's on and runs back and tattles to john also uh, again just so my usual like medieval religion pet peeves this guy is a bishop it says multiple times that he's a bishop and then it also keeps saying he has to get back to his abbey and i'm just sitting there going mm-mm, mm-mm, no 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 stop it bad yeah. He goes, he tattles to John, and they plot to kill off Richard, which Marion overhears. Unfortunately, Guy sees her walking away, but she still has time to compose a letter that she's not ultimately able to deliver, but she does give Bess enough information that Bess is able to run off and deliver the message herself. And Marion, meanwhile, is captured by Guy, who has finally, bless his heart, figured out that Marion is on Robin's side after her many, many unsubtle facial expressions indicating as such for the last hour of this movie. Right. He, he knows that she does not want to marry him. Right. I love that she's being accused of treason for supporting Richard, <laughs> which seems like not treason, but that's fine. Um, he is technically the king. He is technically still the king. Yeah. But uh, John does tell her basically that he will execute her for treason, which he will have the right to do in 48 hours, because by then uh, he believes that Richard will be dead and he sent somebody off to murder him and he will be the king. 
Bess, meanwhile, arrives at the tavern to let everybody know that they need to make a plan to save Richard and also Marion, who she refers to as my baby, which is very sweet. Yeah, well, I like their relationship. Bess actually has yeah. a really good interaction with everybody who she interacts with. Yeah, definitely. I, I really like I really like Bess. Bess is the best. You kind of wish that, I mean, at least I usually miss that character in a lot of the Robin yeah. Hood adaptations. But she is in the Disney adaptation. Yes, she is. So it's interesting because they they have a leading in waiting character often for Marion, but she often fills a very, very different function and is a very different type of character. And one of the things that I don't love about either Menentites or Prince of Thieves is that both of them do this kind of weird thing where they the only thing that they really talk about in relation to this character is the fact that she is deeply unattractive because she is not thin, essentially. Right. Whereas at this point, you know, Bess is an older woman. I can't remember how old Una O'Connor was when they filmed this. Maybe she would have been 58 when they filmed this. Right. Married five times. And on her way to... On her way to husband number six. Yeah, maybe maybe husband number six. Yeah. So it doesn't yeah. occur to them that they should, you know, fall into that trope. Right, which I which I do really like because it, it's very uncomfortable the ways in which some of these other films really just have her as, a, you know, so she's this woman and she is there basically just to be Marianne's attendant. But then they, because she's not as a conventionally stunning as whoever the actress is playing Marianne, the entire character is about how this person is aggressively unfuckable. Yeah, it, it's... it's- incredibly lazy writing oh absolutely so yes i i like that that's not done here mm-hmm. richard in his desire to eventually find robin hood comes up with the clever plan that he should disguise himself as an abbot in the hopes of being accosted by robin it works it has worked before it yes he, he is indeed accosted by robin who uh, initially is uh, asks him for his money and says, you know, you've, you've got an abbey, you got all sorts of stuff. And uh, when the abbot, however, says that he is a friend and supporter of Richard, Robin says, how about you just give me half your money and stay for dinner, but also has a little bit of a critique about Richard's choice to go on crusade, which is an interesting inclusion. Yeah. So I like two things about this. I like, first of all, just the outright acknowledgement that if he's an abbot, he must have money. Yeah. He's got an abbey. He's got money. Yeah, which is, you know, antithetical to what, you know, the priesthood is supposed to be. Though we know theory and and practice are often not the same thing. So I like, but I like that just outright acknowledgement that, yeah, you're rich. But then also that Robin is critical of what Richard has done. And the fact that Richard Mm -hmm. went off on this flight of fancy. Right. That if he hadn't gone on crusade, that I mean, by going on crusade, he did effectively abandon his people and put them in this, uh, and put them in this position. And it's interesting because Richard does not get mad. He, he sort of seems to agree. I mean, because earlier, I think he actually does say like, ugh, I never should have got on crusade. Yeah. I mean, he, he might feel differently had he not been kidnapped on his way home. Right. I mean, that's part of the problem, of course, is that, I mean, I'm certainly not going to like defend the act of crusading or anything, right. but if he'd gone on crusade and then came home right after the crusading, his crusading was over, it wouldn't have been that bad. Other kings managed to do so without things going to hell. Yeah, yeah. But no, the fact that there is an acknowledgement of a mistake is not what we're used to seeing in depictions of medieval era royalty. Yes. Yeah, which I think is interesting. And he seems almost like that Robin is standing up to him. Mm-hmm. 
which I think carries through that, that idea of respecting, not necessarily a worthy adversary, but Mm -hmm. respecting that someone can, can, I I don't necessarily want to say be an equal because they're certainly not equals with when one is a king and one is just a nobleman, but there is a little bit more of the, I, I don't quite know how to word this, but there is a little bit more of them being okay together to talk about this like he respects that robin is going to do this and i think that carries through with the nobility yeah and yeah and i think uh, that it is this interesting element that also does emphasize richard as somebody who is a good king in you know this portrayal of him in that he is willing to take criticism Mm-hmm. Much arrives with the message about the plot. Of course, they announce that we need to, like, you know, try and find Richard and bring him here for safety. At which point, Richard announces, I'm here, everybody. Yay. <laughs> Surprise. Surprise. So, <laughs> this then allows for them to set in motion their plan where they arrive all dressed as monks now at a court for John's coronation which John claims like, oh, yes, I, Richard's dead. I have right according to blood succession. I'm a king now. At which point Richard puts down his hood and says, aren't you a little premature, brother? And I actually love all of the periods where we have Richard dressed as a abbot uh, or monk and then reveals himself that he just has this robe. And then he just like, it's like a like tearaway stripper robe <laughs> that he like rips off to reveal like his like, Full, like you know the like li- the like lions uh, the like gold lions on a field regalia. of red coat of arms regalia yeah that he's got his like whole traditional look and I, I find it very amusing yeah because it it's, happens like what three times two or three times we have our battle uh, which is also this is also a solid action scene the choreography between Gieve Gisborne and Robin is great yes it's a really good fight scene they both seem competent which is uh, Nice, and I think which also makes sense based on what we know about Guy thus far. There's no reason to presume incompetence the way sometimes when you have our antagonists and Robin Hood films, they're just so silly that it almost doesn't make sense that they're good at swords. Right. No, this makes sense. Also, there's uh, the choreography is interesting because it also really highlights this contrast between the two of them. Guy at some point drops his sword and Robin picks it up and hands it to him. Guy, on the other hand, at some point, while they're fighting in relatively close quarters, uh, like pulls out a dagger, a hidden dagger, and tries to stab him surreptitiously, which he is not successful in, and Robin then stabs him, and he wins. Surprise. Surprise. The adventures of Robin Hood ended with Robin Hood's victory. Shocker. We have our final resolutions. They uh, throw the various swords and shields of the defeated into a pile. The guards are gradually disarmed. Uh, John attempts to argue in his favor, but doesn't really have much to say except, but I'm your brother. (laughs) But Richard, I'm your brother. (laughs) Richard. (laughs) This is the moment where you can absolutely see the lion in the animated one. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. He is then banished from England. as are all, as is all injustice, and the Normans and the Saxons, two very distinct groups, are now fully equal. How nice. And everything was fine in England for the rest of time, and they were never racist again. Yep. And they never had, you know, issues about social conflicts or, you know, problems with kings, especially kings named John, that led them to, you know, write up a whole document about what were and weren't the rights of the king. It's not like they had that. No. (laughs) 
Robin asks for a pardon for all the men of Sherwood and uh, to be able to marry Marion, but she's also, of course, on board with Richard, names him Barry, name, I, I said Barion. It <laughs> 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 names him Baron and orders him to marry Marion, which he does so very quickly. He just like runs, like he's like, Richard's about to say something as he realizes Robin's already at the other side of the room, to which he kind of yells back, may I obey all your commands with equal pleasure, sire. Everybody is very happy and everything is solved and England has no inequality, hooray. Congratulations for England. Everything went well. It must well. be nice for them. You solved every problem. Right. Mm-hmm. So the fact that that is obviously not the case is the very obvious part of the Vera et Falso that we did not, in fact, make England into a like socialist paradise. Never even came close. No, nor even did they actually banish John. Oh, you know, I don't actually think I ever gave it any thought. Yeah, no, I mean, when it comes down to it, basically, he's like, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I like you, but like, you're my heir. Yeah. I mean, because lines of secession being what they are, if there isn't another male heir. Yeah. Is at this point, the last of Richard's brothers, there's a nephew, I think, still at this point. I think his, uh, his late brother, Jeffrey, has, uh, has two children who I think are not yet dead under suspicious, under suspicious circumstances. <laughs> Uh, which they eventually will be, or the son at least will be. Poor Arthur of Brittany. Yeah, but Richard doesn't have children. The other brother, Henry, also died uh, died childless. So it's really, it's it's John. Like, he, he knows he's basically stuck with John. There's some, some kind of tacit forgiveness of the ways in which he was, uh, he behaved somewhat questionably during uh, Richard's time abroad. And, uh, yeah, and, yeah. and you know, this does to some extent tends to exaggerate quite how far in the direction of obvious treason. I mean, John kind of walked various lines, I would say, in certain ways in terms of uh, trying to present himself as, uh, I mean, it was something that he could credibly claim that he's, you know, just being Richard's regent. And he, despite the fact that he takes that position unright- unrightfully, that he's supposed to do that. He, he ends up being basically fine. And he was king but longer I do... than Richard was, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, he was king. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Richard's been only king for about a decade and he wasn't even there for most of it. Yeah. John was king for, I can't remember, but I can't remember the exact, his exact regnal dates offhand, but it's, oh, in the like 20 to 30 year range, I think. And he, you know, puts his son on the throne. And in fact, all future English monarchs are descended from King John. Yeah. So he, he does okay for himself. Oh, well, but it does, you know, do a couple of things. Well, I uh, appreciate it, as I said before, that it acknowledges the real reason Richard's gone so long. Uh, It also includes even some kind of solid details that it mentions that Richard uh, named his friend William de Longchamp as regent because he didn't trust John, but that John increasingly was challenging Longchamp's Longchamp's authority and managed to uh, supplant him. However, I am sad not to see Eleanor. Like Poochie, whenever Eleanor is not in a not in a movie that takes place in late 12th century England, I'm like, but where's Eleanor? I mean, given the first episode of this that I hosted with you. Yes. Clearly, you know, Team Eleanor. Clearly. Also, fun fact, 
in part of his efforts to recover Richard, Longchamp kept trying to leave England so he could negotiate with Richard's captors. And they kept trying to prevent him because there was a question about like, A, whether they trusted him, but also whether they like wanted Richard back. And at some point he disguised himself as a woman and tried to swim to France, but then did not succeed and washed up on the beach at Dover. And his disguise is revealed when a fisherman came across his like, waterlogged unconscious body thought he was a prostitute and lifted up his skirts <laughs> that never makes it into this mo- this story right that would be a good movie that might actually fit into the movie i'm about to suggest amazing I'm, you know, I'm very fond of the character of Bess, as I said before, but I appreciate the, first of all, the mention of the fact that she has been married multiple times. And this is a figure that we do see in medieval literature of these uh, women who have been married uh, a number of times, the kind of lusty widow who has had a number of husbands, uh, some of whom might've died under questionable circumstances. There's no shame or that you might kind of expect not not for the era, but for the era that the movie was made in. And I appreciate that because it's also something that people, I and mean, people often assume an intense level of prudishness about the Middle Ages that right. is not borne out by knowing things about the Middle Ages. This is one of the ways in which that was the case, that there really doesn't seem to have been much of a stigma against uh, remarriage, that in practice for you know somebody who is widowed and is still relatively young that uh, to some extent the expectation is that yeah she'll probably remarry and that's fine and men don't seem to have uh, been unwilling to marry well-off widows i imagine in some cases it could be quite advantageous absolutely yeah but no i appreciate that and it, it, like i said it's, it's not a comment on the medieval era and and relationship right. norms and gender norms then but more that it's made in 1938 mm-hmm. when yeah. there are huge concerns about that kind of thing right particularly in how they're depicted in film and how audiences are going to watch it and how audiences are going to perceive it and perhaps behave in that way because there's already a concern with that during the depression and sexual immorality and multiple Mm -hmm. it's all kind of tied into you know who can have birth control right yeah and whether or not abortion laws are being followed I also liked that Beth is very chill about the possibility that Marion might be engaging in some premarital sex, or that at least that she is being left, she's leaving her unchaperoned with no major concern once Marion tells her to go, essentially. I like this as well, because this also, I think, really fits much better into what we actually see of medieval ladies in waiting in medieval literature, so that we often have a lot of representations uh, in, in particularly some of our Robin Hood movies of these ladies in waiting as these figures whose goal is to safeguard the chastity of uh, their charges. In medieval literature, this figure of the lady in waiting often tends to do just the opposite, that it's often this figure who it's really emphasized plays this role of facilitating the woman's uh, sexual explorations. In the era that the Hayes production code was in, there are instances of movies where they're basically trying to show sex without showing sex. Mm -hmm. And there are ways that they're getting around it. It wouldn't really surprise me if that's supposed to be some kind of implication. Like they can't, they clearly can't show it. They clearly can't go there. They can't 
have any more of the kissing than they do. I mean, there was literally mm-hmm. a time limit on how long lips could be connected. <laughs> There's a scene in, in the Alfred Hitchcock film Notorious, which I mentioned earlier because Claude Rains is in it and he's great in it. That's essentially a three and a half minute kissing scene that is meant to, to essentially be sex, but they can't keep having them kiss. So uh-huh. they never stop touching. Like they're always embraced to each other. Yeah. It's, like, it's like intermittent kissing. And that was Hitchcock's way around that. Now that's mm. eight years after Robin Hood is made. Intermittent kissing, like intermittent fasting. <laughs> there is a history of, of directors mm-hmm. and of filmmakers having to figure out how to get around this. Yeah. And the fact that they have, you know, her lady in waiting, just have fun. Go yeah. for it. Bye. Yeah. I'll see you later. That, that I think is, is an implication that they're they're kind of willing to to let the audience think yeah. a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's a really interesting touch. However, there are issues as well. I would say in our uh, some of our kind of gender related portrayals in this film, from an accuracy standpoint, and the one that really jumps out at me is the fact that. Most of the time that we see Marion, we see her as the sole woman in these all-male spaces. Yeah. Which includes a lot of her at, like, like the first time we see, or the first time at least that we see Marion, it's this giant dinner party, and she seems to be the only woman at this entire party. And that does not make any sense and is not something that would have happened at this kind of large gathering. It's really noticeable. It's it's really yeah. noticeable that she is the only woman. And then so the fact that later when there are other women in a scene with her, it's becomes that much more noticeable that they're there mm-hmm. because they're so glaringly absent elsewhere. It's the, the only other time I think you see a group of women are, is when Robin is showing her the forest and showing her the poor people. Yes. I think they're also at the, uh, the archery tournament. I think also there aren't really there aren't any noble women at least which isn't her other than her i don't believe you know it's just her so it doesn't it doesn't pass the bestial test because their conversations are pretty much all about robin Um, oh yeah it passes the if decker test it does pass the if decker test with flying colors we have two named women and they both make it yep but yes, but definitely, definitely does not pass the, the Bechdel test since, uh, yeah, they, they converse, but really only about Robin. Yeah. It's a good conversation. I like that it's, and I like that it's like a very, it seems like it's some, it's a conversation that for 1938 is like a sex positive conversation. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Yeah, but it's very odd that we have Marianne constantly isolated as a woman in these all-male contexts. She has her lady and she has best her lady in waiting, but other than that, she's the only woman in this like massive caravan of people. Yeah, it's weird. This isolation of her is strange. And so, yeah, so then we do have this like kind of one scene where she's got like all of these like ladies around her. It, it, yeah, that is very surprising in some ways that all of a sudden they're all there when it's like, but we're, we're, why, why didn't you go to the party? Why aren't you eating? Right. Can't yeah, they like, eat? Why, why aren't you at dinner? Right. <laughs> yeah. No dinner, just executions. <laughs> we also have the, I would say, usual problem to some extent with our friend Friar Tuck. So I will note, first of all, that some of the details that we have about Friar Tuck come actually from one of the 17th century Robin Hood ballads in terms of how these two individuals met one another, including the detail that uh, of where he is from, that he is uh, from Fountains Abbey. And I will note, okay, so the good thing about this is that Fountains Abbey existed at this point in time. 
It was founded in 1132. The problem is still, well, A, that he's obviously being presented as a Franciscan friar as he usually is. And Fountains Abbey is a Cistercian, a Cistercian, which is, you know, part of Benedictine Abbey. Also, that in addition to being in the wrong place, he's also in the wrong time since the Franciscan order was not founded until 1209. You know what would have made this fun? Hmm? Time travel. Exactly. Time traveling Franciscans. (laughs) (laughs) See, that actually would have been really fun, especially if you'd had like a time traveling... uh, even later, like for like one of the 14th century, uh, really intense Franciscans who are getting like really angry at voluntary poverty and are kind of moving into a sort of semi-heretical territory in challenging the wealth of the church. That would have been fun. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I will preface this by saying I don't particularly like the Big Bang Theory. I don't think it's very funny. I think the jokes are mm-hmm. bad, lame, and lazy. But there is an episode where one of the characters they're trying to get him to go to a Renaissance fair, but he refuses because the Renaissance fair is historically inaccurate. Mm-hmm. So his solution to that is to go dressed as Spock investigating a foreign planet. Okay. Which is kind of like, you know, we watch these medieval movies and they have this mishmash right. time period because they assume if it's the medieval era, it's all the same. It's all the same, yeah. Related to that kind of mishmash of everything in the Middle Ages all took place at exactly the same time is our uh, intense Saxon-Norman conflict. Yeah, this weird ethnic thing going on, which they're they're, they're very much framing as an ethnic conflict. Yeah, that it's fundamentally Um, about ethnic identity. Yeah, which is weird. It's weird in terms of the actual context for this uh, and really in terms of how it actually looks in the film too, it really is very obviously a essentially a kind of class conflict, right? I mean, it's about the impoverished peasants versus the lordship, which includes the bishops and the abbots. So that's a big part of it. The other big part of it is that there's not really very solid evidence to argue in favor of Saxon identity being a meaningful category in any way this late. Okay. That if we were going immediate post-Norman conquest, there would be a sense of a divide between Saxons and Normans, and also with that divide being increasingly linked to social status because the Saxon nobility is mostly kicked out slash leaves voluntarily Mm -hmm. and are effectively almost entirely replaced with with Norman nobility. And so the divide becomes one of social status because of that. But we're already over a century past the Norman conquest. We're already starting to get to the point where we're developing a language, which is a combination of uh, Germanic Old English and Romance Norman French. There's really not entirely a reason to think that a kind of Saxon identity versus a Norman identity would have been a way in which any of these people would have thought about themselves. So I think the choice to do this in this particular movie is just to kind of have identifiers for the audience. Right. Like it's easier to say Norman versus Saxon. I mean, so the other thing I almost wonder is that it also is something else that to some extent kind of helps to blunt the social inequality message, arguably, and that it's not really about a wealthy land-owning class versus an uh, impoverished working class. Yeah. This is a Depression-era movie. 
Mm-hmm. And I mentioned earlier the studio system and yes. Warner Brothers, if you're comparing it, I would say it's like Warner Brothers is a Ford and then you have mm-hmm. MGM that's going to be more like a Mercedes. Mm-hmm. Warner Brothers is making these movies really quickly, really efficiently, but also, you know, it's not these huge grand productions where everybody is rich and people are wearing these huge gowns. It's more like down in the dirt. Yeah. Warner Brothers is the everyman studio. This is the studio mm-hmm. that is responsible for the majority of the gangster movies from the 1930s, which are okay. a response to the Depression. And yeah. I think you could argue somewhat of a Robin Hood quality to them mm-hmm. of these outlaws yeah. who you root for. The difference being that Robin is essentially arguing to to restore the status quo, whereas mm-hmm. in the gangster movies, because they keep being cr- criminals, you know, you're rooting for them and you're rooting for them to commit these crimes, but they have to have their comeuppance at the end. So even though you're rooting right. for Cagney in The Public mm-hmm. Enemy, you know, it is expected that his dead body is delivered to his mother's doorstep at the end of the movie. Right. By the way, Cagney was the original casting choice for Robin Hood. Hmm. James Cagney was from Hell's Kitchen. Uh-huh. Hmm. That would have, have been interesting. He never acted as if he was not from Hell's Kitchen. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very much dodged this, a bullet this there. Irish New Yorker. Yeah, I think we maybe dodged a bullet on that one. Who spoke Yiddish. Hmm. Because he had Yiddish neighbors. Hmm. And he picked it up as a kid. I mean, that would have been fun, especially given that to the extent that there was anything even resembling an ethnic dimension in who gets exploited in this particular context, it probably is the fact that the people who are being disproportionately taxed because of a uh, kind of ethno-religious identity are Jews, who, as usual, are not appearing in this Robin Hood film. No, no, Sarah, if we're to believe the movies, Jews don't exist in I'm the medieval era. About this, actually. Oh, fun. Yes, I'm, I can't do any research, so I might as well start putting some of this pop culture stuff in writing. Somewhere in my head, there's actually a paper about Holocaust movies. Yeah, I think you should do it. But in this film, also one of the other interesting pieces of this is that they actually make Robin even Saxon, despite the fact that he is somebody who is identified as also being of the nobility. And that, I think, really highlights the fact that they're presenting this as this fundamental ethnic inequality that they can then say, okay, we're not doing that anymore. Whereas if it's a social inequality that is a foundational part of the system, which it is, then you can have more and less rapacious lords. But even the status quo is not like great. Yeah. The question of Robin's Saxon identity or lack thereof can be a way to lead into our Historia Veritas, where I realize I've never actually really talked in too much detail, I don't think, about the origins of the Robin Hood story and the question of whether there is a historical Robin Hood. That's actually shocking considering how many Robin Hood movies that you have covered on this podcast. Right? I've somehow managed to avoid it. I mean, like I said, I think you're only missing two. Yeah. I mean, if you count... The third one that Alan Hale did that's not not really, I'm pretty sure it's like a Robin Hood sequel. But if you count that one, then you're missing three, unfortunately. Right. Unfortunately for you, because it so means having Robin to watch Hood. more Robin Hood. Right. But I've somehow managed to avoid doing that. So 
I am going to do that for a bit now. Well, very few scholars think that there was a real Robin Hood. He is uh, presumably drawing on, to some extent, a real uh, presence of outlaws and bandits. And uh, some people have commented on the fact that there is a reference to a man whose name is something like Robin Hood uh, in a document uh, from uh, 1323. So somebody listed as being in the service of King Edward II. And that dating is actually interesting because uh, so the, the Robin Hood legend arose uh, maybe as early as the late 13th century, but the only really kind of definitive references that we have are like late 14th century and our earliest surviving ballads and plays that actually give us real details about the Robin Hood legend as opposed to just passing references are 15th century and later. And I mean, a lot of the traditional elements of the Robin Hood story are really 17th century in terms of the the kind of Robin Hood ballad tradition. Most people agree that there probably isn't a historical Robin Hood. There is still this question of, okay, but in terms of this legend that we have, when is this legend supposed to take place? And in these earlier ballads from the 15th century, they tend to actually place Robin quite a bit later that they place Robin in the context of uh, the early to mid 14th century. And this is a period where banditry uh, seems to have been in particular an issue. There's a kind of growing concern about bandits and outlaws uh, on uh, the good English roads in the 14th century. It's really only then in these kind of much later, really modern adaptations that we suddenly place him now in this context, which is so familiar to most of us, of Richard the Lionheart's absence during the First Crusade and beyond, and the inclusion of John as this figure of a main antagonist. The other thing to note in terms of Robin's history and identity, of uh, in terms at least of the way he's depicted, is that the initial portrayals tend to really just emphasize the fact that he is somebody who, despite having uh, embraced ultimately his life of outlawry, is a uh, somebody who was at some point a noble, and the emphasis is often on his courtly mannerism. So in the same way in the film, as we see this emphasis on his uh, honor and his sense of fairness, that this is something that is kind of emphasized in the ballads as well, that he's still essentially this kind of courtly figure who uh, is uh, no longer kind of acting in many ways as a member of the nobility, but who still has certain ideal knightly knightly or noble traits. And it's then actually a bit later, again, that we start to get the idea of this folk hero who robs from the rich to give to the poor, that this is also something that's not really coming up until about the 17th century ballads in the original medieval context. He's basically just as kind of in the our kind of late medieval context in our earliest Robin Hood ballads. It's basically like he's just this kind of like charming outlaw. He doesn't really have a kind of clear social message. He's just like you know, he's an outlaw, but like, he's kind of fun and you sort of root for him. That would be interesting actually to see it where he doesn't have this social message where he's just right there to have a jolly good time going through the forest. Yeah. And that he has kind of this, again, this kind of sense of uh, fairness and honor yeah. that he's in. Yeah. But that he doesn't have this, uh, this particular goal to address social inequalities in any way. Like, I don't think we need any more Robin Hood adaptations. Oh, no. At least <laughs> not good. for a very long time. But if it were to do something that changes the story like that, mm-hmm. that is something I think I'd be more interested in watching rather than just kind of rolling my eyes like I did with the 2018 one. And it would be fun to actually put him back in that 14th century context, too, in terms of really getting to do something different. 
And because, you know, it's a, like Robin Hood is actually uh, arguably a contemporary of Braveheart. That is more interesting. That's actually more interesting than Braveheart. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Because there aren't any adaptations with him without that messaging. Right. Here, that's very much his aim. Uh, and I would say, yeah, that is throughout That is uh, throughout most of the Robin, pretty, I think pretty much all of the Robin Hood adaptations that we have is that it's this particular context of either broader social inequality or at least some kind of uh, uniquely terrible oppression that is happening that needs to be addressed. Right. Well, they have to justify his actions. Yeah. And that he can't just be this guy who's like running around and kind of having a good time. Yeah. And, you know, has a sense of fairness, but also is, you know, going to rob you. Or in this yeah. case, kill you. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, which yeah. I do think is interesting, right? That he's, he's not afraid to kill people. And I think this maybe somewhat more kind of morally ambiguous Robin Hood would be a an interesting one. I and mean, especially if you didn't set him in that context of uh, like the reign of Edward II, moving into Edward II being uh, deposed uh, by his wife. Isabella and uh, her and and someone involved between her and her lover very possibly being responsible for having him murdered and then uh, Edward III's eventual accession to the throne like I think if that was that would actually be a really interesting context yeah I, I mean it's and it's interesting to me that instead of actually looking at this the idea behind filmmakers trying to make more interesting Robin Hood movies is to just make him broodier yeah I mean you know it's just like okay like we did this with Batman already right like Yeah, yeah, which, I mean, it's kind of what happened with Superman movies now. Right, yeah. It's what Zack Snyder did to Superman. He wanted to make a Batman movie, but he had Superman, so he included black colors. Right, and now he's he's broody and everything is gray, and the Crusades are the war in Iraq. Yeah. And it's all ridiculous. Right, and they're not good movies. It often does seem like, I'm not sure it is the case that there's nothing new that you could do or say about Robin Hood, but the things that I think you, and I've talked about many of them on this podcast because I've covered Robin Hood so many times and we're already, of course, edging into our Fabula Nostra section, which I, of course, have elsewhere, but I don't think there's anything that we could do to make the Robin Hood story interesting and different that there are actually filmmakers interested in doing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that's what it that's what it would take. So I think, you know, right. they're probably out there. They just haven't done it yet. But yeah, there are things that could right. be done to kind of instead of what we keep getting. And I will just say that in terms of so I mean, I love that idea that I just came up with on the fly, but I will say my uh, my initial inclination for the Fabia Lindostra was just that we have too many Robin Hoods. I don't want another Robin Hood. I'm done. Please don't make another Robin Hood movie. You know what I just want? I want the sequel to this movie. And it's about Bess and her sixth marriage. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Yes, that's that's really all I want is I just want the sequel to this. And it's like Bess and she's like embarking on her sixth marriage to one of the married men. We maybe we get some flashbacks of uh, some of the previous husbands. Yeah, I just I just want a movie about Bess. Bess is great. That would probably be pretty. Do you have casting for Bess? I actually failed with casting for Bess and I'm trying to decide who would be good. And because you don't want somebody who, I mean, she's not like super young, right? I mean, she's, you know, she's five times a widow. Yeah. Um, and like I said, um, Connor was 58 when they made this movie. Right. Yeah. So I think you do want somebody who is uh, around, yeah, who's around like their early 60s. But yeah, I would watch an entire movie with Bess. 
Yeah. I, I could see her actually having to sit down and explain to someone, now here's why, why this is my sixth marriage. Let me tell you the story right. of the other five. Right. Emma Thompson could be good. Oh, she would be fun. She has yeah. just the right energy for this. Yeah. It'd be I think that'd really be fun. I'm, I'm here for that. It would be really cheeky. Oh, yeah. I think that'd be great. Okay. The six husbands of, oh. of Bess. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so what would you like to do for your alternative film? So it would not be a Robin Hood movie. Good. So much it'd be much in the vein of the tone that The Little Hours has. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I you know, the dialogue can be very, very contemporary. But instead of having a movie about Robin Hood, I would have a movie where some of the more, you know, the non-noble people are reacting to Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. Because here's awesome. this rich guy coming in who thinks he can solve their problems. Right. And just imagine some people like off on the land thinking, who the fuck is this rich guy thinking he knows who can fix our problems? I have too much work right. to just, like, worry about this. Super out of touch, right? Yeah. And he's just like going around and he's like, rise up in rebellion. And he's and they're like, dude, I have a job. Yeah. Yeah. Like, do you see these hands? Do you see these calluses? You don't have those because you've never worked a day in your life. Oh, that'd be fun. I was trying to cast it and I was also unsuccessful because I didn't know, like other than, you know, non-nobles, I, I really didn't mm-hmm. figure who these characters would actually be. Right. Just people who you ordinarily would see in the background wondering, who the fuck is this rich guy? Right. <laughs> who thinks he can come in and talk to us and fix our problems. No, I think that'd be great. Which is also a commentary on who is philanthropy open to? Mm -hmm. Like, what are the ethics of charity? Who does it impact? And is it really actually doing any good? So I'm suggesting a comedy, but I am suggesting a satire. Yeah. There is absolutely this disconnect between, you know, who the people in power are and who has the ability to actually do these things as opposed to what people on the ground actually need. But also, of course, the fact that the vast majority of our politicians are very wealthy individuals, that we have very few people who are actually affected by many of the greatest problems in the United States who are actually in a position where they can do something about it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I I think it could be pretty good satire. Yeah, definitely. Our last proper section is the estimatio or rating, where we rate this film on a scale from one to five based on our own individual, entirely subjective set of criteria. I'm giving it a four out of five. Okay. A lot of this is nostalgia, but also I think it holds up pretty well. I mean, there are certainly issues we talked about, like the lack of women is is an issue. Yes. But I think certain things are, are you know, a little bit surprising, a little bit more progressive than we might've expected. Mm-hmm. But also it's just, it's fun. Yeah. It's a fun, it's an enjoyable hour and 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier, I think that that gets lost in a lot of Robin Hood adaptations. Like the merry men are not so merry in most of these. Mm-hmm. But they're merry here. And I, I have fun with that. And I think that there's, you know, the production value is fantastic. I mm-hmm. love the music in this movie. The music in this yeah. movie, it's, I mean, like I said in my notes before we did this, this is the basis for John Williams' Star Wars score. And you can hear it. Right. And Korngold, yeah. uh, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, who, who composed it, you know, had to flee fascism mm-hmm. in Austria. So we'll bring it back to Austria. But, you know, he created- right. So many Austria references created this really great soundtrack that keeps this movie going mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i'm actually also going to give it a four out of five and i have no nostalgia at work but 
as we all know, I've watched so, so many Robin Hoods. First of all, I think an hour and 40 minutes is as long as a Robin Hood adaptation needs to be. Looking at you, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I think that this movie does a better job of having a of having the relationship between Robin and Marion make sense. I think that actually works better than a lot of Robin Hood adaptations. I think that in some ways it's a better and uh, there's major prop, you know, the Saxon Norman thing. There's definitely major issues, but I think this is in some ways a slightly better representation of the medieval world than I see in a lot of Robin Hood films. There's a problem with the absence of women, which is, I think, deeply just kind of weird that they couldn't have managed to, like, find female extras. And it's not great that the really only purpose of any of the women characters is to worry about and help Robin Hood. But as your your average Robin Hood movie goes, this is the one that I think I'd be most likely to actually want to watch with the well with the exception of the disney of the disney uh robin hood which is i would say my top this i think might be second for me honestly i think this and the disney one are the best ones yeah but, oh and i'll also add the chemistry with errol flynn and olivia de Havilland, which yes works very very well yeah and i think the combination yeah. of the fact that they have real chemistry and that i think the writing of their relationship works and she actually has an arc she does she actually i mean she changed she it's a dynamic character. She's not the same person at the end of it. She grows, she changes, yeah. she takes risks. Yeah, which is more than I can say for Marion. I mean, you know, and her arc is being a rich person who realizes that poor people aren't terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, from a, like a class consciousness perspective is like, I don't know, maybe a weird choice. But from a like portrayal of female characters perspective, like at least she has character development. Yeah. And like she does things. She has some agency. Uh, I, I think this kind of works. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to go four out of five. Morgan, thank you so much for coming back on to talk about this. Are there places where the listeners could, if they so desire, to find you on the internet? Yes, but you have to request to follow me. Okay. So just like if someone actually wants to go to the trouble to do that. On Twitter, it's actually, I have to say this out loud. I've never actually said it out loud. <laughs> It's Morgan says balls, like, oh, balls instead of, oh, shit. So it's Morgan says balls. But yeah, go ahead and request if you'd like. All right. It's it's mostly just me shouting at New York Times articles and soccer. That's fair. Yeah. Usually they deserve to be shouted at. Some of their headlines are just so bad. Oh, yeah. Well, and you can follow this podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod. And uh, should, of course, subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate interview on Apple Podcasts. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. And uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah H. Decker. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can email me at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So thank you, Morgan, again, for being a part of this conversation. Oh, of course. We're already making plans for the next one. Exactly. And yep. thank you for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye. Bye.